We will be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, and then chapters 8, verses 1 through 13 from the ESV translation. If you don't have a Bible here with you today, or you may have forgotten yours, just raise your hand or make it a little bit known, and our Frontlines team would love to bring you one. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you and accept it as our gift. So chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Sorry, pregnant woman just climbed the stairs. I just need to touch and take my breath. <laughs> Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Although, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. In chapter 8, 1 through 13. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence again, an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well for the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, 
because he does not fear before God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Niall, also for sharing. Oh, that was a rich time of uh, worship, wasn't it? I'm always uh, just blown away. So grateful for our opportunities to worship Jesus in this space together. Well, a couple of questions as we begin. We've been then in this series, Ecclesiastes, The Search for Meaning, for a few weeks now. Where do you find purpose? What is the meaning of your life? Regardless of your age or stage, what is the meaning of your life? Where are you finding it today? Where are you hoping that you will find it? What is the purpose? What is the meaning of your life? As we've been exploring Ecclesiastes, we've been exploring a number of different themes, places that we look to to find meaning and purpose. Reminding us a few weeks ago, I quoted Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. He says this about Ecclesiastes. He says, the author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in life apart from God and then let the teacher deconstruct them. If you remember, the author is distinct from the teacher, preacher, or orator of the book. The author thinks that people spend most of their time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And so he allows the teacher to give us a reality check. You may remember that I shared that the medieval, in medieval thought, they thought of Ecclesiastes as the most dangerous of all books. And maybe you felt that way, a little bit exposed as we've continued to go through this series, and maybe that will be the case again today. You know, the word that we heard repeatedly as Steph read the text for us, and also a word that we've heard multiple times is this word vanity, which as we've come to see has less to do with mirrors and makeup, which is some of the ways that we think of vanity, and has more to do with the meaning or the purpose of your life. And the preacher is saying in essence to us, if this life is all there is, if you're only living for the temporary or transient, then it's all vanity and your life is pointless. Now, as we've explored some places, it's important to note that many of the places that we look to for meaning and purpose, they're not all bad. Most oftentimes, these aren't bad places to look for value, significance. Take some of the examples of the last couple of weeks. We talked about pleasure. We talked about knowledge. We talked about accomplishment. Last week, we talked about time. Money was brought up in the text last week. The problem is not with these things themselves. The problems come when we try to find meaning in these things apart from God altogether. Using the words of the author and pastor Timothy Keller, it's when we make good things God things, and they become idols in our lives. Now, today's message and section of Ecclesiastes, as you heard it read for us earlier, is no different. And what the teacher does is he transitions to two more assets. You may have caught them, you may have not. Don't worry, I will point them out for us. And he'll attack these things and question these things. Before we do that, however, why don't we take a moment to pause. I'd invite you to invite Jesus to speak to you this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd still challenge you, invite Jesus and say, hey, if you're real, teach me. 
and then we'll continue. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the stillness. We thank you for the quiet. We thank you that you join us. You are God with us, our redemption. I pray that this morning that you would undress these two assets that the teacher looks to, and you'd help us, Lord Jesus, in the ways that we have pursued these things for meaning and purpose apart from you, and that you would expose the nature of things. That we would see maybe these things are the only things that we're looking to under the sun, as it is. And would you speak truth into our lives? We trust you with this. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes 4, if you have your Bible, uh, if you don't, they will not be on the screen. I actually do that intentionally, so you might actually have a hard copy before you. If not, I will read them for us. You'll hear them. We're going to go through this line by line, uh, a little bit slower than how Steph read it. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 7. What does this preacher say? Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Now, if you're like me, and as you've been reading through Ecclesiastes, you go, come on, leave us alone. Another vanity? Haven't we had enough? Stop pointing out these things in my life. I don't want to hear anymore. And the author is going to go, absolutely not. We can't stop. We have to keep searching. We have to keep asking questions. We've got to plumb the depths of our motivations and answer these hard questions in our lives as we're searching for meaning, as we're searching for purpose. Here's the vanity. 8a, meaning the first part of verse 8. One person who has no other, either son or brother. What is the next vanity? The next vanity is the person without anybody else. The person that is alone. The person without extended family. The person without dependents or even friends. Now, why is this vanity? Verse 8b. Yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So why is this being alone vanity? Answer one, there's, there's no end to the toil of a person who's in this situation, he's never satisfied with the riches that he gains by his work, and he never bothers to ask, who am I doing all of this for, and why am I depriving myself of pleasure? Peterson puts it this way in the message paraphrase of Ecclesiastes 4, 7 to 8. I turned my head and saw yet another wisp of smoke on its way to nothingness. A solitary person, completely alone. No children, no family, no friends. 
yet working obsessively late into the night, compulsively greedy for more and more, never bothering to ask, why am I working like a dog, never having any fun? And who cares? More smoke, a bad business. Can you relate? Do you feel alone? Three types of loneliness. Involuntary loneliness. This may be due to our personal family history. This could be due to trauma in your life. This could be due to pain. Could be due to a relocation, a new city, or even the area or the place that you are living in. In other words, you could be someone completely surrounded by people, but the loneliness feels absolutely unbearable. We then have voluntary loneliness. What do I mean by voluntary loneliness? This could be due to workaholism. This could be due to the idolization of success, accomplishment, power, or even control. As much as we're maybe sold the concept of community, many of our work structures and the competition that exists within those work structures impresses the idol of work into our lives and then oftentimes we'll then openly accept it. Imagine with me the man or woman sitting alone in an enormous home with lavish, lavish items and great travel across the world and yet they sit there alone some having driven the people in their lives out of their lives, or others who never made time for community at all. Now, as far as the pendulum, you can imagine that as it being a significant place to be at the end of your life. But back up from that pendulum swing a little bit. Are you experiencing a voluntary loneliness when you've give, where you've given yourself over to things that has caused a deep loneliness to sink into your life and into your heart? There's a third loneliness, and I titled this one Unconscious Loneliness. This is loneliness induced unconsciously by the rhythms and patterns of our lives, especially in our lives via our cell phones. There's someone by the name of Jean Twenge, and she wrote an article for The Atlantic in the September 2017 issue, so it's a few years ago now. And the article is titled, Has the Smartphone Destroyed a Generation? She argues, based on statistics and research, that the constant presence of the internet in our lives, particularly social media, and she's looking in the article specifically at teens, is changing the behavior of today's teens. And there seems to be a direct link between changing habits and the introduction of the iPhone or smartphones generally. As they studied teenagers in 2017, you can imagine now we fast forward post-pandemic life, it was found out that teenagers today are not hanging out with their friends as much as they used to. Teenagers today are in no rush to drive. They're not dating as much as past generations. They're having less sex than past generations. They're more likely to feel lonely and they're less likely to get enough sleep. Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, or his article more recently in The Atlantic titled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, looks beyond teenagers and recognizes it it's an issue across all generations. And both of these writings point to the increases in mental health issues and suicide, in particular amongst teen girls, since the introduction of the cell phone, and as a result, social media, and an increased online internet use. 
Now, once again, it's not that our phones are necessarily bad. There are a lot of great benefits that come from them. It's when these phones become little idols in our lives, when these good things become God things. It's also interesting to me that the the longing or the prone-to-wander reality of the human heart set in motion by the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is towards hiding, is towards getting away. Adam and Eve are separated from God. They hide from him. And the impact is still felt today where we hide from one another and worse, where we hide from God. Look with me at Genesis 3, 7 to 9. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Again, this temptation in our hearts towards hiding, being alone to not expose or share what's really going on in our lives with the people around us, to be surrounded by crowds, yet feel completely alone. Well, where does the teacher of Ecclesiastes go next? Is there a solution? Verse 9a, two are better than one. Here is the solution, according to the author, community, relationships. And this is great, but why? He tells us, 9b, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not yet another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will not withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." So the preacher gives us some reasons for this community or this relational approach to life. He says, one, they'll have a good reward for their toil. Two hands are better than one because you'll get more done, and therefore you can share the profits. Secondly, if one falls, the other will help him up. There's also an extra word and warning that's added. Woe to the person who's alone and falls and does not have another person to lift him up. I broke my ankle uh, fairly severely in the middle of August. We were out backcountry camping. Thankfully, I had three people that I was with, and thankfully, Fire and Rescue came in to help us get out. If I'd been absolutely known, it would have been awful. Third reason for this community or relational approach, staying warm. Now, this does not in any way need to be interpreted as sexual. The illustration stands that the more people in a cold room, the warmer the room gets, and this is good. Or how about fourthly, defense. Two against one is better odds than one against one. And he says, even better, find a third. Then you'll really have solid defense. In conclusion, the preacher says, listen, community and relationships are good things absolutely worth pursuing. Community and relationships are good things absolutely worth pursuing. Maybe you need to hear that today. Community and relationships are absolutely good things worth pursuing. However, (laughs) look at what the author includes from the preacher in the next very strange illustration and section. Verse 13. I'll read the verses and then describe to you if you are having a hard time like I did the first time I read this, understanding what's going on. 
Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the peoples, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What's going on? Well, the teacher tells us, he provides this contrast between a poor and wise youth who rises to prominence and then a foolish old king who's too proud to take advice. The preacher's conviction is that it's better to be the poor and wise youth. However, for all of the support and success that this young king received in the beginning, that support eventually dies off as the crowd ultimately loses interest. Therefore, vanity, smoke, meaninglessness. What's the point? Well, while two are better than one, relationships and community are hard because they involve sinful people, and people were not made to meet one another's greatest needs. So while two are better than one, absolutely, relationships and community are hard because they involve sinful people, and people were not made to meet one another's greatest needs. In other words, we can find joy and meaning in relationships and in community, but yet we still must recognize that we will fail one another, we'll forget about each other, we'll fail to satisfy one another's deepest longings. We may even at times hurt each other. Community is yet then another place that we try and build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And what the preacher and the author wants to point out is this too is not the answer. Let's take some examples. So within the context of Church of the City, we talk a lot about missional communities. And we talk about them and we kind of sell them to you as being these incredible places. And many times they are incredible places. And it's an amazing place to find community. It helps form you in the ways of Jesus. It can be a tangible place to serve the Lord on mission. But at the same time, a missional community is made up of a group of sinful people, and therefore they are not perfect, perfect, and the people in your community, even those closest to you, will disappoint you. And if you haven't experienced that yet, the day will come. Another example, marriage and the common issue of unmet expectations. You know, some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but at weddings, you hear it a lot in vows or in speeches of, I'm going to make you the happiest person in the world. And I often want to sit there in the back and go, liar! Because inevitably that's going to happen. You could maybe make that person the happiest in the world from periods of, for periods of time, and then you're going to make them the most frustrated person in the world at other times. Or you'll hear a lot in, in weddings or in movies and things about romantic relationships of you complete me. Blech. Brothers and sisters, your spouse is not made to complete you. And tragically, couples put this incredible pressure on each other to complete them, to meet their every need. But just think about how this works practically. Start with all of your needs and wants, even your fantasies. Is it the role of the other person to satisfy and meet them all? Absolutely not. What an incredible pressure that is to put on another person for that person to put on you. Therefore, there must be something else, or in the words of the author of the Chronicles of Nardia, 
if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Let me read that again. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world will satisfy, the most common probable explanation, just the logical probable explanation, is that you and I were made for another world. And brothers and sisters, here is the reality of that other world. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so enter this otherworldly relationship, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which satisfies us to the extent that is possible on this side of heaven. I think that's important to remember. One day Christ will return and it will all be lovely, joyful, perfect. But he does pursue us and we can find some satisfaction to the extent that it is possible on this side of heaven. I quote this one often, but Matthew 5, 28 to 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I think these words are really important. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There is a learning that is part of the process of growing in relationship with Jesus. For he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You and I were made to live in a relationship with God and then with one another. And relationship with God through Jesus Christ also enables us to live in community realistically. He gives us the tracks for gospel-centered community, which leads us to sacrificial love, to forgiveness, to reconciliation, to generosity, and humility. Tim Chaddock, who I've been quoting through this series, says this in his book, Better. If Christ is the power that drives your friendships and the focus of your community, both will go to the deepest level. Some of us miss out on community and struggle with loneliness for this very precise reason. We do not allow Jesus to be our central motivation. We deal in guilt rather than grace, keeping score as we go. Jesus models perfect friendship, and he also empowers us to live better and stronger in our friendships with each other. He will never leave you or forsake you. Okay, so community, relationships is one of the assets that we look to for meaning. But what's the second one? As Steph read it for us, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. The preacher says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So the preacher asks two questions. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? He then makes this statement. A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. In other words, he's saying wisdom is a great asset worth pursuing and the ability to interpret it is also very good. In other words, pursue wisdom but recognize its limitations. And then he provides another example. Verse 2a, I say, keep the king's command. Now, this is an example of how to use our wisdom in submission to authority and power. Well, why keep the king's command? He goes on to tell us, 2b, because of God's oath to him. 
Now, there is this very strange and often at times mysterious relationship with human authority and God's providence in the scriptures. Often this connection and mystery makes little sense to us, especially in the face of evil rule. And we could do an entire series on that. Commentators also suggest, however, that here in this text, there's also a personal emphasis in the verse regarding our wisdom as far as an individual's oath to the king. In other words, keep your word, which reminds me of Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5, 33 to 37. And yet the application of wisdom continues in the following verses. Verse 3, Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. The word of wisdom to us is don't second-guess the king, even when things are difficult. You're serving not someone else, you're also serving yourself. Keeping the king's command is good, and wisdom will be your guide as you figure it out along the way. Verse 6, for there is a time and way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavily on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? You can, I cannot know the future. Shoot. Spencer talked about that last week, pre-COVID. All the plans we were making for ourselves before COVID hit, and then it hits, and then I guess those plans are going out the window. We can take our best stabs at getting things right, and we still may fall short. He continues, no one has power to retain the spirit or power over the decay of death. Now, who does have that power? Jesus heard you in the back. Another king, Jesus Christ. 8b, there is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had no power over man to his hurt. Now, while this conclusion speaks to the nature of pain in relationships. In other words, when man had power over man to his hurt, he's also speaking to the challenge of power as an asset. The challenge of power as as an asset. In other words, he's asking the question, Is power any good at all? Is it good for the person with it? Is it good for the people who sit under it? Do the benefits of power outweigh the costs of power? And to that, we'd probably just simply go, well, maybe. (laughs) Sometimes. Lord Acton said this, all power tends to corrupt. And maybe for the next part, an absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Therefore, what does the teacher say? Say it with me. Vanity. Let's say it all together. Three, two, one. Vanity. Well, is there a solution? Verse 10 to 13, another example. (laughs) Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of raised in the city where they had done such things. (laughs) This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do 
though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. These are views, examples given of the vanity that exists in power. Firstly, the wicked, though appearing righteous on the outside and being praised for being righteous on the outside were actually wicked, and then they die in the state of their wickedness. A hypocrisy, a self-righteousness, therefore vanity. It says, secondly, justice does not come quickly enough, and human, the human heart is set towards evil. You and I know this as we grieve the injustice in the world. It's like, God, where is the justice? Thirdly, the sinner prolongs his life through his or her sin. How's that fair? It's not fair. And yes, it isn't. And look what comes next. 12b. A little bit of hope. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. What does he say? In the face of this asset of power, Ultimately, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the injustice, it will be well for the person who fears God. Well, how? Well, first he would say it's well with this person because the person that fears God simply is fighting and moving towards in the enduring approval of God rather than the approval of another person. And this, therefore, gives them a purpose and assurance in their life. Additionally, while the circumstances of life may not feel or especially be well in the present, it will be in the future, especially eternally. And this is around the assurance of the future in their lives. Romans 8, verse 18, and verses 22 to 24. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. So how will it be well for those who fear God? There's certainly an assurance in the present, but more than that, there's an assurance in the future. Eternity with Jesus. Praise God. But then he says, it will not be well with the wicked. It will not be well with the wicked. Well, how? Psalm 92 verse 7 Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Hebrews 9, verse 27, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Heavy verses, but brothers and sisters, this is justice. And we want justice, especially for tyrannical power and then blatant injustices. However, however, 
You cannot punish tyrannical power or injustice without looking internally at yourself and looking in the mirror and saying, what are the injustices that I participate in every single day? And many of us want to live in this dream world where we say, you know, I'm not all that bad, especially, you know, compared to Hitler or Kim Jong-un. But realistically, how good is good enough? And what happens is that we all live with this lie in our head. But this is not how it works according to God, the maker of the universe, the author of creation, and the just judge who rules over the living and of the dead. And you can say, well, I don't believe in him. Okay, that is your faith position. For followers of Jesus, this is our faith position, that that doesn't work according to his standard. And then we read in the scriptures, in Romans 3, verse 23, that all of us have sinned, and all, every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. We're all wicked. Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of that sin, of that wickedness, is death. But the free gift of God, praise God, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There's two parts here. The wages of our sin is death. The cost and the payment for our sin is death. Separation from God and relationship with him. And all of us are guilty of that sin regardless of these subjective niceties that we try to conjure up about ourselves. What do we read? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there is a way to life, a way for the cost and payment of our sin to be satisfied with God, and it's through Jesus Christ. Him in our place, his life, his death, and his resurrection on our behalf. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Praise God. And so how do we respond to this free gift? John three sixteen. I read it earlier, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then may he follow me. Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It will be well, praise God, with those who fear him. Belief, all of life, denial, faith, repentance, and surrender. Repeatedly, I go back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed with those with poverty of spirit. Those who recognize ultimately their helplessness without God's help and deliverance. And through Christ, we come to recognize that God is all-powerful. So you and I don't need to be in control. We come to surrender with open hands as recipients of authority and power in the wisdom that we have and as a person with limited power yet holding some responsibility. And you know why we can surrender to the power of God because he's all-powerful? is because Jesus' power is one controlled by love. 
Jesus' power is one controlled by love. For God so loved. Now, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that relationships, community, and submission to power will be easy. The opposite is true, generally. Especially on this side of heaven. And yet, what you are and I are invited to each day is to trust, surrender, trust, and surrender, trust, and surrender, trust, and surrender, time and time again. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to trust and surrender. I thank you once again for this preacher who exposes the niceties of our lives, these places that we look to find meaning and purpose apart from you, which as we consider and as we, as we ask the hard questions of, we come to see that they cannot meet those needs that we have. So would you help us, Lord Jesus, to see things clearly, to have perspective. I pray, Lord Jesus, if there is anyone here today who is counted amongst the wicked. Lord Jesus, all of us were wicked at one point, and we even still struggle with wickedness. We're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Yet for those who have trusted Christ, we receive this free gift of redemption, of salvation. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that anyone in this room who has not trusted you, Jesus, would come to know you today. They would hear your gospel of grace, not what we have done, but totally on what you have, Lord Jesus. We want to trust you, and we want to surrender. In your name, amen.